0: Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas
1: that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance
2: landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution.
0: A demonstration of some mental
3: stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, in the power here to innovate.
4: Ha. All right, welcome to another episode of the Oil and Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McQuayne. As always, I'm joined by my Co-host Eric, how you doing, buddy? Good to see you.
3: Doing good. How about yourself?
4: Living the dream, as always, my friend. Nice. So this week on our case study episode, we're going to talk about we're going to talk to Bluefield Technology. Your Tom Ariel is going to be talking to us. He's a CEO. It's about satellite imagery used to create precision analysis of greenhouse gases, including methane and CO two and things of that nature, all the way down to the wellhead. And then we're going to couple it with a insight segment from Gray Alton, who is the Vice President of Project Development for Terrapin Geothermic. So those two segments we're looking really forward to. But before we do that, Eric, as we always do, we start out with a little bit of a talking point. Right. So as, as you, know, we, you know, we use LinkedIn, we use social media, all kinds of different places to connect with people. And especially on this journey, we, I found LinkedIn to be an amazing asset for us. And as I was looking through, you know, especially around voices that are not in the oil and gas industry, or not typically kind of in, in, kind of in our echo chamber, one of the people I saw out there making a difference and, and kind of really got enamored with his background was Paul Webb. And so I was kind of looking for a way to connect with him. I had a couple of discussions with him. And after doing that, he sent me some articles that he had done, and one of them stood out to me. And it was really kind of an amazing article that I sent to you earlier about this use of the third highest cost of a company after Buildings and People is the use of energy and now this is actually one of his favorite episodes or favorite pieces that he's done. And that really got me thinking around the world of no matter how it's created, whether it's nuclear or natural gas or coal or wind or solar, that what are you doing from a responsibility standpoint in terms of energy efficiency? So just kind of start Eric, when you hear the words energy
3: conservation or efficiency, what kind of comes to mind? So Sean, when I think about it, I think about getting more for less. How can I get more of what I need using less power? And as you guys know, and you're probably sick of these stories, but one of my favorite things to do is we spend time racing trucks in the dirt, okay? And so whether you're in Baja or in West Texas, it's a blast, but there's nothing more fun than racing a truck in the dirt than racing a truck in the dirt at night, okay? So ever since I've gotten involved in this over the last decade, what you see guys spend money on is lights on the front of their trucks. The goal is to light the night up so that you can go as fast as you can in the day. On this more for less concept, when we first started doing this, we were using halogen lamp lights. Hmm. Massive power pull, very little light. Okay. Next gen was kind of these high-intensity discharge lamps that came along. A lot more light, a little bit less pull power. And now on the front of my truck, pulling almost no power is lights all run by LEDs. Hmm. Okay. So we're putting out massive lumens, very little energy pull. So we're getting more for less. So when I think about energy conversation, when I think about energy efficiency, I think about how can we get... More of what we need, but using less power to get there. Yeah,
4: yeah. And I think about going through from the time I can remember, energy star ratings on on different appliances. You know, it's been around for this concept about being efficient with what you're doing. Seems to be out there, especially on the business side. Although a lot of times it's more of an operational efficiency, and and kind of to the point of Paul's article, the use you know the cost of electricity is that thing that we all have, even at our own homes. Right? We just kind of leave lights on. We just kind of, you know, go through it. And if if it's we don't want to pay a lot more for our bill but we don't spend a whole lot of time through that which I think is a, kind of a, the crux of some of Paul's frustration but so with that we actually have Paul with us today to help us with this talking point because I thought who better than to go straight to the man himself and so before we bring him on I'm going to tell you a little bit about him so Paul has over 40 years experience in his career working in various roles in various companies in around the use the efficient use I should say of energy and he started in the nuclear industry which I thought was very interesting and this is he kind of had a catalyst moment at that point where he, as the industry shifted and he went into the world of kind of energy efficiency, he realized that you needed to be a good steward of this, which I think is a really amazing kind of origin story. And so then his next, his next endeavor was into being an energy officer with the Metropolitan Police, which I think is very interesting. And then he was a controls engineer with Trend and Satchwell. And then he started B2B Energy back in 2005, where he's the co-founder and the CEO. And the idea was to develop an energy consumption software and is currently working on a book called Becoming an Energy Expert. And one of the things that he talks about in his videos about that is some of the impact that he has had through his company over the last 15 years. He calculated out to about a saving about a billion kilowatt hours of use of energy, which is economically worth about 175 million British pounds, which for our American listeners, because we, we, we don't do well in the conversion rate, is about $225 million worth of savings over the last you know 15 years in terms of different regions around where he's from in the UK. And so all that to said that right now, though, in the twilight of his career, he's currently on a mission to gather people from all around the world in all different languages, all different borders, and to understand that we need to create a team of experts and thought leaders on the use of energy. And so I thought it was a, you know, who better than to have than the man himself and come in and talk about it. And so with that, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: Thank you. And I'm very impressed you've you've just quoted my sort of life story, really, in that last I've only just posted some of that stuff, so very well done. I'm very, very impressed with that. <laughs> Thank you. We try to
4: represent as as well as we can, and, and it really is. It's
2: That's amazing. Thank you for that. I really feel good that you've said that that way. Thank you. You're really welcome. Appreciate
4: it. You're welcome. So, Eric, when, when it comes to energy conservation, where do you think we should start?
3: You know, it's funny. I, I think we spend, as an industry, an in the only gas industry, we spend a lot of time focused on the front end, on the creation, the fight about whether we're going to use oil and gas to generate but I think it's something you mentioned to me earlier when we were talking about before we brought Paul on was this idea of, this is just, you know, once the, the energy is created, it's a very valuable resource. We should be really good stewards of how we use it. So it doesn't just matter. I mean, it very much matters how we create it and what's the best way to create it. But once we get it in our hands, how are we going to use it? What's the most efficient way for us to use it? And, Paul, that's one of the things I'm just excited to talk to you about is you think about this third most expensive part of your corporate budget We should be heavily focused on making sure we're shrinking that that budget line item as best we can through efficiency and other efforts, right?
2: Yeah, totally agree. Now, you picked up on a point when I was eighteen, walking through that turbine hall and hearing you know those turbines scream, you know, and we're, we're delivering some significant energy base level nuclear power's base level. And I used to walk around and you know some of these things that used to inspire me was I used to drive through protesters on a regular basis you know youngsters my age 18 at the time and and i'd drive my way through these protesters because i was trying to stop us for delivering energy through nuclear because the nuclear waste though nuclear energy is clean it provides a, a waste which then goes off to you know many many years of waste it's a problem many 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 years on but there was talk about it being turned into nuclear weapons etc so we were though providing renewables, it was providing a precious energy as far as I'm concerned. And I realised then is, you know, why am I generating energy? I wanted to save it. You know, my dad would then moan at me because I left the lights on or, you know, I pulled the chain too many times. It's that same old story. And then as I've grown up, I've done the same with my children. Why are the lights on? I come home at night and all my windows are open and the heating's on. Why are we wasting energy in that way? So they're all the different things that all built up in my mind and and some of my frustrations because what we do at home, yes, we control it and do our best, but we don't do anything like that when we're at work. No one focuses on that. You know, I walk around buildings that are fully illuminated, overheated, you know, overcooled. You know, no one's trying to control anything and we're wasting money by doing that and energy really but the bottom line to a business is it's wasting them money and they could be saving money.
3: Well and I, that's one of the things i like about it it's this two birds with one stone right it's it there's a large incentive for corporate management to say hey we we can save money here and at the same time we're doing something that is green that's esg friendly that's sustainable as we you know maximize efficiency and minimize usage right so i think that's i think that's what's compelling about it in all honesty paul a little bit surprising that more companies haven't focused on it more diligently than they have
2: i'm so frustrated i don't really understand why they don't focus on it i've walked around london late at night seen all the lights on we are getting better at it. i must admit i am seeing advances in technology that shut lights down so technology wise is getting better i think but we still got that mentality of not saving energy
4: So in terms of technology going forward, so, I mean, before it was the, Eric and I were joking about this, you know, our dad's telling us to shut the door, turn the light off kind of thing. And that's kind of the manual, you know, switch, if you will. So there's so much going on with AI and, you know, computer control and software and stuff like that, in terms of managing these kinds of things. Is that where the next great leap in terms of potential management of that energy efficiency is in terms of technology or where's the next great step in there as far as that goes?
2: I think that does have its place. In the 80s, we had this thing called building management system. And the only people that had building management systems were the power stations and the pharmaceuticals, the larger organizations. But what we see then is that the which is the BMS world is where I come from. So you'll see in some of my other articles where I write about the BMS and then, you know, people put the BMS in, but they don't provide training. They don't provide the knowledge around that. And unfortunately, technologies then needed the training, needed the support, needed the manufacturer to maintain it, to make sure that it run correctly. I think we are now moving into the AI AI world where it starts to look after itself and then starts to focus on itself, you know, and we should eliminate all that. But unfortunately, the the human element still comes into today's technology and we are slowly losing it, which is perfect in in an energy management way. But the problem, there is a problem there, though, because all that technology is high cost, high cost, low quality. Until that comes down, the larger organizations are going to be able to adopt that technology. But the smaller the SMEs, the smaller and medium organizations aren't going to be able to do that until further down the the road, until the technology price comes down and the quality comes up.
3: Right. Right. I love the word you used earlier. You said it's precious. And one of the, th- you know, Sean knows that this is kind of like one of the things I obsess about a little bit, but is is this idea of kind of Western civilization privilege and entitlement around, like I, I literally, I don't know about you, Sean, but I literally don't think about whether or not my electricity is going to come on when I, come, mm-hmm. when I get to the house. I don't think about how much of it I'm really going to use. And I don't necessarily feel ashamed of that, but it's just, it's an honest assessment. I just don't think about those things. But then you think about, you just mentioned smaller companies with maybe less capital and less money to do things. You think about developing countries or underdeveloped countries that are still way behind the curve on energy usage. You know, As I think about the United States and I think about Europe, I think it's incumbent on us as we push these various initiatives that we become really big proponents of the energy efficiency game if we're going to really push the front end like we're going to try to use more renewables we have to take ownership of what we're pushing and become stewards on the back end as well i mean there is an accountability that i think we haven't really picked up on yet embraced yet fully and that's just kind of one of the things i focus on i don't know if you have thoughts on that paul or not
2: as an organization individually and we don't focus on it unfortunately we do take it for granted i think people in the field of, of energy management and renewables, et cetera, they've got a better understanding. But with the people that haven't got the knowledge, it's all about knowledge base, I suppose, where, where we're going from is we need a. this is one of the biggest things I've been trying to do over the last 12 months my LinkedIn post is about providing knowledge to the world regarding energy management. And I don't think there's enough knowledge out there. Right. I, have, have I answered, Have did I answer the great question then or? <laughs>
3: Did you say your question was great or was it in my mind? I think my question was average. I thought my question was average, but...
2: I thought all the questions were meant to be great. That's what I was told. <laughs> <laughs>
4: right. Yes, our reputation precedes us. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. So as far as, you know, these always go by too quick, but I wanted to end kind of with a couple of questions for you, Paul. One is what can an individual do? Like what can an individual person do relative to what they're doing outside? I know we talked about turning lights off and on, but then there's always that argument about, you know, how much difference is that one switch going to make? And is there something kind of more comprehensive that a person can do relative to their energy use? And then maybe what is a company, what can a company can do? And, and maybe just kind of pick a sized company or somebody that owns a building of a certain size that you've kind of used as your gold standard to kind of say, here's why this is important. I've seen individuals make this kind of impact, which is cumulative to this, and then maybe how a business did it. It kind of like, this is kind of my, the sweet spot that really makes a huge difference.
2: Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> so-
3: Actually, two great questions, I think.
2: Well, no, I think it was three questions there. Or we in one. <laughs> a lot of subparts. So, um, <laughs> let's talk about individuals. Individuals need to be aware that, you know, and don't think that climate change isn't going to happen. I don't think we can stop climate change. I think we can slow it down. Um, I don't know whether you guys see the David Attenborough film uh, and it's just been launched on Netflix. Absolutely amazing! It's the first film I've seen about climate change where they've given solutions to how we could stop climate change. So, as individuals, we're all individuals. We can all make a difference. It isn't just about turning your lights off. It isn't about you know having less heating on. It's about you know the type of cars you're driving, the, the distances you're travelling, what you're eating. What your you know, how you live in your whole life that's impacting on it really. So as an individual, I think that's a big ask for an individual to go and start to lear, you know learn to do. So really, as an individual, I think we need to be more knowledgeable about what we need to do and be aware of. As a business, I think we need to really focus on your third largest expense. Don't take it for granted. Don't just pay those bills. I think. You know I talk about in the article about you know it's your third largest expense, expense after your people and your, your properties, but we put all our focus on things like our insurance costs, our you know what cars we're going to get the fleet. You know, we really focus on the cost of all that, but we don't focus on that third largest expense. It's not only the expense, but it's the environment as well it's impacting on. So as, as an organization, I think they need to really put some more priority within energy efficiency. Now, I must correct myself as well, because when I talk about energy, it's gas, electric and water. Water plays a big part of that. That's precious to us as well. And in some buildings, the water actually impacts on your heating and, you know, your cost of your heating regarding that as well. So I always bring that in. And I do qualify that in my book. So thanks for letting your listeners know about my book. I really appreciate it. I've just finished it. It's going to go live within the next couple of weeks. Nice. Congrats on that. That's that's awesome.
4: And I think it's really great because you're, you know, the synergistic approach, which I think correlates a lot with what we're talking about, whether it's, no matter how you're generating your energy or how you're using it, and then what does that energy look like? I think really having that evolution around understanding all these components relate to each other and they're not these individual things as well is a big part of it. Yeah. Well, Paul, these things always, like I said, go by too quick. This was great. Thank you so much for for your time. Any last words you want to take out to the listeners before we go?
2: Just thank you really for inviting me today thank you for following me on linkedin and everything i really appreciate it and you know thank you be safe everyone please
3: excellent thanks paul sounds good
4: all right so stay tuned we are gonna take a little break and we'll be back for the case study
3: hey sean a quick note about our sponsor hewlett-packard enterprise through hpe's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition cloud-based consumption advanced analytics secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization.
4: So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT, or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the case study segment of the show. Eric, today we have yet another one of these Case studies, we've been following, I've been following for a little bit. We've been talking about it, stumbled upon it out there on the world of LinkedIn. Bluefield Technologies is who we're going to talk about today, specifically around their, their satellite detection of greenhouse gases, specifically around methane, and their use of satellite imagery and artificial intelligence to do so. And what's really interesting about this is their founder, Yotam Ariel, is, is going to be with us today. And one of the things that resonates so much with the ESG, I think, narrative and what we're up against as an industry and as a, you know, as a planet, if you will, is this. That's, that's like that one word or that one phrase, I should say, when you start talking about greenhouse gases you start talking about carbon dioxide emissions and all the rest of this stuff, it seems to be that kind of that bugaboo, for lack of a better word, that, right. that, that thing that's causing all the problems, right? So this is a huge... Huge kind of endeavor to tap into as far as the ESG side. Right.
3: And and one of the things I'm excited about is, you know, part of the solution for the industry is technology. It's automation, it's remote ops, it's digitalization, it's AI, it's all these things that can make us better at what we do from an efficiency standpoint, from an ESG standpoint. And I I think what you're going to hear today is some fascinating, amazing technology from space. (laughs) Literally, yeah. (laughs) Literally from space that can help us on this journey. So I'm very excited about it.
4: Yeah, and I think even what's interesting about that too, from a narrative of where where this solution or where this idea is coming from, so Yutam is not your typical 30, 25-year petroleum engineer, mechanical engineer type. And so to tell you a little bit about his background, I'm really kind of fascinated with the kind of his journey. So he he started out, he grew up in Israel. And then after completing his basic studies, he went on a personal pilgrimage of sorts, traveling the world for a couple of years. And it was during this time that he actually saw his the impacts of climate change and what it was doing. And it really, really motivated him for a, to find an answer, a need to manage these things, these assets, properly. And then he does what anybody would do, I would think, and that would be he went to China to go to school to get his degree in business and to learn Chinese, which is one of eight languages that he's fluent in. Okay. So
3: I'm good. still trying to get English down, but <laughs> that's great. You no, know, I know. It's, it's just
4: it's one of those things. It's just part of our... We well, just try to embrace it over here. We, we do one language and... It's shaming us with his yes. eight languages. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, exactly. And then, but then after that, he went there, he graduated, and then he started, he worked in the solar world with a company called Banu as their founder in 2009. And then that, that experience propelled him into 2016 when he created Bluefield Technologies. And so we're really, really excited to have him on here to talk about their precision greenhouse gas detection Utilizing satellites and AI technology, artificial intelligence technology is the case study and focus of what we're here to talk about. And so with all that, you know, tom, on behalf of Eric and I, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here. So as as we like
4: to do when we get started, you know, we talked a little bit about your motivation for how what created this kind of this personal passion project in your experience, but relative to this specific opportunity, what was it that you saw? as a place to attack and a place to kind of address an opportunity or a problem that created the company.
1: Well, thanks. It was really the realizing that we are trying to fight climate change, which is challenging in, in its own. Like we, we, we don't even know if we can, and we're going to do it or the way we're doing it today is we're going to do it blindfolded. And so, and I'm saying that because the majority of climate change is, is driven by emissions and these are invisible gases in places I mean, deep in Texas or or it could be in in oil and gas fields in Iraq. And in order for us to start making a difference, we got to have a way to independently see it very frequently and accurately. And then once we have that type of data, I think we can start making a big difference and really have a chance against climate change.
4: Mm, Love that. So obviously, so you saw this opportunity to jump in there and how do we we fix a problem that we can't measure? And, And so when we do that, like any good opportunity, any good path, there's going to be obstacles. So can you give us an idea as you started to get, go down this, this path of, of developing this idea? What's one example of a problem that you solved that you expected? And then what was one that you didn't expect to come across?
1: Yeah, we were expecting some challenges detecting CO2 from satellites. So we said, okay, methane is responsible for 25% of global warming. We can detect that it can be fixed quite cost-effectively and, and easily and, and save a lot. So let's, let's focus on that. So that was somewhat expected and we, we overcame that. The unexpected one is that I thought, here we got a solution. It's a win-win. It's, it's a win-win-win-win-win. It's everybody <laughs> win because we, we bring the data, the oil and gas or the emitters have better data. They can focus and channel the limited resources and time to the hotspots that need it the most. And then the end can communicate that to the investment community so and get more funding. So the ones that reduce their emissions, showing it by action, get more funding. The ones that are lagging behind kind of dry out. So I thought, I thought that's going to be great. Everybody's going to fund it. <laughs> you know, We're going to win this. And, but then I got into conversations where I said, yeah, Bluefield, we help the oil and gas reduce emissions. And then the, the, the investor I was talking with would say, oh, we don't, we don't invest in things that help oil and gas because we're environmental. I said, no, no, but we help the oil and gas reduce emissions. <laughs> and he just kept his, his eyes on the first half of the sentence. So even if we help the oil and gas do something better for the environment, there was some portion of investors that just wouldn't, wouldn't engage on that. Fortunately, we do have many others that uh, see it more holistic. They understand that the data can bring change. And we're very fortunate. One of our investors is a venture fund in Silicon Valley that's backed by Bill Gates and, and Jeff Bezos.
4: Mm, nice. I love that. So, so you, to identify, you identified the problem, got through these issues and other ones. So give us an idea, kind of a little bit of a deep dive. What exactly... Does all of that, all those fancy words mean around satellite detection of greenhouse gases? What did you create ultimately from a function standpoint?
1: So we created two key aspects of innovation. One is a proprietary sensor, a remote sensor that can be mounted on a satellite, and we will be launching it in two years on our own satellites. And the other one is the algorithm or software to crunch that data, remove all the noise and provide very actionable insights. So an alert of, okay, here's a methane release happening now at this location with this magnitude and or aggregated observation over a year or a quarter. And the way we do that, we already, with our sensor, we've already tested it up to a high altitude balloon and we received reviews from NASA scientists on it. So it's moving forward rapidly. And on the software, we started using existing satellites that track methane. Today, we use a European Space Agency satellite and what we do is our algorithm takes all the data that that satellite collects of it scans the whole world in one day we then it actually takes us just a couple of seconds to scan it flag anomalies and then we run a much deeper analysis that combines temperature and humidity and a lot of atmospheric elements and then we upload the process data or the insights into the data portal and make it accessible for, for clients.
4: And so since, so since you've done this, give us a little idea of what the application has been like. So now that you have it out there, you got through this, you've had some results. Give us an idea of some things that stand out from the initial deployment of this technology.
1: Sure, one recent example is a detection. We were the first and seems like the only to detect in Florida. It was a large methane release. I think that before we detected it, probably a handful of people knew about it. But then it, it showed up on our uh, system. It got picked up by Bloomberg reporters. And then, of course, from just a handful of maybe engineers in the company knowing about it, it went to millions of people know about it. And the federal government launched a, an investigation into potential violation because it was massive. It was uh, 1% of the daily natural gas emissions in the US. That, that was just that single compressor station over there. With venting so it's in this case, the emitter wasn 't proactive, but in other cases, we have clients that they they, they sign up for access to our uh, data analysis, and they're on top of things. they know what 's happening in their operation, they see what the satellite is seeing, they're very proactive. And they work together with the public and the regulators and the investors.
4: So we, one of the things we like to do is kind of define the application relative to the ESG model. But it seems very, I mean, so obviously the, <laughs> you can't get much more environmental with this. But I wanted to ask you whether it seems to like the governance side. You just kind of alluded to the idea that some companies use it one way or some organizations use it the other. This is also an opportunity for a governing body of some sort, whether it's a, you know, from a federal, state, country level, or even a, a company themselves, how they're going to manage this. I'm guessing that was part of the intent as well, is to basically make this as a service model or a service for people to engage with relative to their company or organization.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just making the... When you capture this type of data by using satellites, so we own the data, and then we're able to make it accessible for a lot of people, a lot of sectors, so it can, it can be accessible and used by the emitter, by the government, by the investment banks, by the public. And because it is... It's data, it's, a lot of it is just self-consumption by the user. You can price it very flexibly and it's, I think you can get the, the impact that it will give us an edge.
3: One of the things that I love that you said earlier, Yotam, was that data can bring change. It's going to be an enabler of change for us. And as we think about you know, dealing with methane and how we're going to... I think another thing that we talked about before we started recording was you can't fix what you can't measure, but you also can't report which you can't measure, you can't audit, which you can't measure, you can't track progress, you can't communicate those successes out to the public. And I I know one of the things y'all are really hitting on is it's highly precise data, highly accurate data that I think the oil and gas industry can tap into. And you're not driving trucks around trying to understand emissions data, but you're using the satellite data, you're using this tech, and we're taking that and ultimately I think what we're going to see is presenting this data and presenting improvements in what we're doing on the emission side. And so Josh I'm just kind of giving me a little bit of your thoughts about where you see this heading inside the oil and gas industry, not only from a fixing it standpoint, but for just from kind of a accessing data and reporting data and having that data audited and, and trying to tell that story, you know, to the world really about the things that we're trying to accomplish on the emissions.
1: Yeah, side. Ab- absolutely. Cause I, I think it's fine. The oil and gas has environmental impacts but we use it. And then, but it's like we saw with some of the investors we were pitching. It's as if they're all categorized as, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to do anything of it. They're all bad. But it's not the case. Some companies, I've talked with leaders of oil and gas companies, small and big, that are extremely proactive, putting a big chunk of the company's future and revenues into improving their in- environmental performance. So, but if we treat them the same as we treat ones that just kind of, you know, do nothing about it, then that doesn't help anybody. And so I think this kind of data can start putting companies in different categories and showing that when you do walk the walk, you get more what they call social license, you get better funding, you have better relations with the government. And that's the way forward, and so yeah, that's something that I'm quite excited about.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with that, and I love that your unexpected story, your unexpected event was a capital access story, right? I mean, really, that's what it was. Everybody looked at me and wait, you're gonna, you're gonna help oil and gas, and we're out, right? And I think what you hit on is exactly right. We, we, we've got a situation where there are some. You know, industry participants that are highly focused on this. They're working so hard to do the right thing and to have not now have access to data that they can prove they're doing the right thing and say, hey, you know, we're the kind of company that you should invest in. We're committed to the oil and gas industry. We believe in it. We know it's necessary and needed for all the reasons, Sean, that you and I talk about all the time. But we're trying to do the right thing with respect to the environment, with respect to emissions, and actually have the data now that to show that story. There's some really great companies. That want to be able to, to tell the story. And I think that's one really exciting part about it, Yotam. I think a lot of people are like, oh, the technology is super cool and we can fix this. But I kind of come at it from that lawyer, capital markets lawyer side. I'm like, no, no, no. This is actually how we're going to start raising money again. We need this data because we need to show the world what we've actually accomplished.
4: Are you seeing that, Yotam, on your end? I mean, is, that, is that an appeal that you see in that industry or those areas? Is that where it comes from?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is that when we talk with because the companies that engage with us are the, the proactive ones. They are the ones that they want and they, they are putting so much efforts into bringing the environmental impact of oil and gas to the minimum they can. So, yeah, it's exactly that.
4: <laughs> and I do want to do a little bit of a soapbox thing here. When, when you first told me that story about, here's a group of people that want to, you know, at your core, like you were on this pilgrimage of sorts, you see the impact of climate change, you want to do something proactive about it. And so it's, let's, let's detect it. Let's figure out and this is equitable. Let's share it across the board. It's not just this thing that we employ to kind of punish people or to give them a reason to point fingers. It's for a management. Like if it's done well, you're maintaining down to the well pad. If I remember down to the well site, you can detect, right? So you're, you're able to be proactive. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a measurement side. And so that I know for a lot of people that are listening that are kind of in the proactive or pro oil and gas side is, are going to say, Here's an example of somebody who's so angry about what we are that they're not even willing to engage in this technology that does the very thing that is most important to them. There's a disconnect there. And the tendency, I think, is for us to get kind of point fingers and say, that's the problem because they're not smart or they're just being dumb or they just don't like oil and gas. But I would push back internally to those in our industry and say, that's an opportunity. That's actually a need. We need to do a better job telling the stories of what we're doing and why. Because I think there's a, there's a level of cognitive dissonance in there, and I agree with that. But how do you overcome that isn't to then continue to ram down their throat how dumb they are for not investing that money, right? You can argue the investment side or whatever, or the moral side. So all that to say, would you talk a little bit about the other perspective about kind of coming to it from not an industrial, like you weren't in the oil and gas industry specifically, but you knew you had to engage it, I'm sure. Maybe how did you break bread or how did you make friends with working within this industry that can be perceived as the greatest contributor to this issue relative to climate change and and emissions?
1: I think one of the things that many years ago that inspired me for this type of approach was a project by the Nature Conservancy. They funded and helped sustainable logging in Borneo. So it's controversial. It's basically helping loggers in the rainforest of Borneo to log trees that could be hundreds of years old. And they're an environmental organization. The thing is, what they do is they look at the situation over there, what what's, was happening, that they would cut a tree, it would fall and take like half the forest with it because of all the other plants that were entangled. And then they would kind of, you know, cut a chunk and say, oh, it's hollow. We can't use that. Let's move to another tree. And so that, and that's why... That's why there was such a destruction at such a pace without the ability to regain the fault. And so they went in and said, no, 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 you check the tree if it's hollow before you <laughs> cut it. And when you do, and before you cut it, you make way for it. And then you take it out with like, it's a wire mm, yeah. rather than make a road for it. And so with that, you can actually, I mean, the, now through the project, the impact of that login, okay, it is, it is there, but it's, you know, it could be 1% of what was happening. And so I thought, I thought, yeah, this is where the opportunity is. Go to the biggest environmental offender. This is where you're going to find the opportunity to reduce it and then walk with them and don't come to it as, oh, he's a bad guy. That's why he doesn't do it. I've never talked with a bad guy in the oil and gas. All of them, the people I've talked with, want to do the right thing. They say, we want to do the right thing. Show us how. You know, Give us a solution. And so I think that is the way. And once... Also, now we're, we're starting to have more and more partnerships. And I think the other investors that they were saying, oh, let's just I don't know, buy Teslas, they will see the impact that it brings. And they, I think they will join as well. It would just, just got to start with a little bit more open-minded investor, but gradually it will attract the other ones as well.
3: A couple of things. One, I love that story. The idea, you know, we need access to this wood, to these trees, but let's do it in the most efficient way way possible that preserves the forest in the same way. In the most efficient way that we can, right? I also love that there are no bad guys in oil and gas.
4: <laughs> and I love the fact that he took a logging story and ended up doing a satellite you know, technology <laughs> side. And so I wanna dive into the tech a little bit. I know it's IP and I know there's some elements of that, but can you kind of give us an idea of relative to other levels or other types of emission detection standards Where does Bluefield come in in terms of efficiency or capacity? You said earlier, you can look at the whole world. I mean, that's a big, that's a lot, right? So maybe help us understand kind of the technology as much as you can share with us relative to, you know, all those things.
1: Yeah. So the way the sensor that is on the satellite, it relies on sunlight that hits the earth and reflects back to space. As it hits the earth, if there's methane in its way, it distorts the light spectrum and leaves a signature that then get captured in the photon and travel at the speed of light and reaches the satellite. The sensor's job is to find that methane information within the sea of noise of CO2, other gases, water vapor. So that's the working principle of that sensor. The key advantage of the satellite is that it's flying so quickly and covers such a huge area without any limitation. I mean, there are limitations. It cannot (laughs) see through clouds in the night, but it's not... It's not limited like a truck or a helicopter or an airplane. So, you know, even if you fly a helicopter or, or an airplane or a drone in the Permian, you're not going to just continue the next hour to go over China or the Middle East. It's not going to happen. And also the cost of it, the satellite is just, I mean, once it's launched, it's on. And it's with the European satellite, it does it every day. To actually have that on other platforms, drones or trucks or, or anything, on any spot in the world, every day, the cost will be in the uh, yeah hundreds of billions per year, and it's it's just not going to happen. Especially with those, it's sensitive. I mean, yeah, the Middle East countries not gonna allow, or Russia, they're not going to rush. They're not going to allow trucks,
4: <laughs> helicopters, you know, US, and drones yeah.
1: to fly yeah. over. No, no,
4: we're just taking pictures of the yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of your energy
1: infrastructure.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, we're here to help you.
3: Yeah, I know the website hits on that. It's it's kind of eliminating eliminating this whole field logistics issue, right? I mean, is there any practical way other than the satellite approach to get daily accurate methane data? And, you know, I have an accounting degree and a law degree, so it's still very cool to me this idea that we have a sensor on a satellite going around the Earth, and it detects the fingerprint signature of methane because the light spectrum changed when it bounced back up. (laughs) That's yeah. actually really pretty cool, Yotam. I just <laughs> want to tell you that. I agree.
4: <laughs> and so from a qualitative standpoint relative to the data, I wanted to ask you something. Natural gas is predominantly methane, unless I'm wrong, as I remember,
1: right? Yeah, 90%. So, about 90%, right.
4: so, yeah. so how, is there is there another aspect to the reporting or to the measuring? Obviously, outside of the obvious, if you can see an infrastructure of an existing, you know, if there's a storage com- container somewhere that's leaking, you can kind of tell that. Are you able to see also what is naturally relative to methane? What is naturally in the air? What is naturally being emitted? And is that part of the data analysis as well?
1: Yes. So that's because there is methane in the background. And there's also just sometimes because of topography, the, like, like the mountains that we lock it in. And so the world is not a uniform background of methane. So the way we do that, when we look at, uh, we look, we're trying to pinpoint that specific source, or let's say it's a well pad or, or a refinery. What we look is the background methane in the area around it, not the country around it or, or even the state, just the area around it, and we use that as a baseline. And we say, well, on top of that, how much methane is being added? And we try as much as we can, factoring the different atmospheric conditions so that we can separate what is background and what is that Industrial site emitting.
3: That's excellent. It's just fascinating. Yeah.
4: So we're getting ready. We're coming at the end, which is really disappointing because this is great. But what is so, so obviously, this relatively new technology, cutting edge technology. What's next? Like, what's the next step, hopefully? I mean, you, I know you talked about this can detect greenhouse gases. CO2 is a little bit more of a challenge, but there's an element of that. Is the idea to then expand upon the service spectrum and the of what uh, Bluefield can do and add other? greenhouse gases or other detection elements to what you're doing as well
1: yes it's the so we have these the uh, satellite detection capabilities they keep evolving but the expertise to analyze the data and then put it on a portal that's actionable for end users for engineers and, and, and executives that is what we can help with and so yeah today we're analyzing methane data Next year, we'll start bringing in other greenhouse gases like N2O, SO2, NO2. These are, in, sometimes it's in chemical production and other sectors. We can also add radar data that help us detect liquid oil spills. So there's a range of applications that we can start cover and help companies really track their environmental. Performance Gives us a reason to have you back on. For sure. (laughs) Great.
4: (laughs) Excellent. So, yo, Tom, so thank you so much for the time. Be safe. Wish you nothing but the best. Would would love to keep in touch and find out more as this project continues to to have, I think, an amazing impact on our ability to detect these kinds of things and have that. And truly take those steps forward on the ESG side, definitely on the environmental side. So thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Great. All right. So we're going to do a slight break and then we're going to be joined by Gray Alton, from terrapin geothermics and then we'll we'll have that inside segment next so stay tuned enjoy the break and we'll be right back
3: hey sean quick note about our sponsored hewlett-packard enterprise hpe goes beyond digital transformation their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core they can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more?
4: It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hbe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to our inside segment of the podcast. Eric, we just got to listen to Yo Tom Ariel from Bluefield Technologies. By far, one of my favorite ones we've talked about so far, mainly because of the just the the pragmatic the level of technology that's being enhanced relative to what we're doing from a day to day basis around emission detection and things of that nature, and how he kind of came to it from a completely different angle. He wasn't a a techie guy, or wasn't somebody who was out there in the industry trying to find something, you
3: know we, the
4: The forest story we were just talking about. Love the forest story. You know, this like, And then for him to extrapolate that out and say, it doesn't do any good. This is okay. How do we engage in this? How do we have emissions? But if we can't detect it, we can't solve it. We can't report it. Those kinds of things.
3: Yeah. My favorite quote was that data brings change. Yeah. Right. And so you know, what they're doing to access data like that with precision on a daily basis. That kind of data is the kind of data that can help companies that want to make a change to actually execute on that change. So that was great to see.
4: Yeah, so we're joined today from the inside side. So instead of just hearing you and I talk, we'd like to reach out to the industry and find others that come along this journey with us, listen to the case study, and then come in and give their perspective. And we were fortunate to find, become friends with Gray Alton from, from Terrapin Geothermics. He is their vice president of project development. And he was born and still resides in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the heart of Alberta's oil and gas sector. And if you've been up that that road to Red Deer in Edmonton and Calgary, he's not kidding. That's that's where it's at. That's like their version. Calgary's that city, as a Houstonian, that I always think gives us a real run for our money in terms of like just – Everything we're about, whether it's a rodeo, whether it's oil and gas, or just being friendly, they do, they do do their part to keep it competitive. I love going up there. But he's a 16-year industrial construction veteran with a focus within oil and gas and a graduate of the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology in Construction Engineering. And when he's not trying to develop the clean tech industry, you can find him on a golf course or like most typical Canadians, playing hockey. So if we run out of things to talk about.
3: We, <laughs> we can talk hockey. We
4: can talk about Le Albiton. We can talk about the original six and all that kind of good stuff, which is always a fun thing to talk to with our friends up north. But all that said, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the inside segment today.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was a really great session before, too. I, I learned a lot.
4: Excellent. So relative to that, as you're listening, was there anything that stood out to you relative to the stuff that you, Tom was talking about that Bluefield can do?
5: Yeah, I mean, the first one was his, his investment journey especially when you're talking about trying to bring new technologies into the oil and gas field, you know, there is resistance in the investment community because there's hesitation around what they've done to date. I think that narrative's shifting a little bit now with the carbon neutral commitments that are being made, but you know, our industry in in industrial waste heat recovery is seen as extending the life of a hydrocarbon asset and so you know we're actually making them more efficient by you know every time you fire that gigajoule of gas we're getting you a little bit of extra power out the back end but it's still working within the oil and gas industry and, and we did definitely get pushback in the early days from the investment community just because it was pure play oil and gas.
3: And So when we talk about that narrative shift a mm-hmm. little bit you know I think that's incumbent on the industry itself to do a better job at telling its stories i mean it's one of the reasons behind this podcast Uh, i think sean it's one of the reasons that you and i get passionate about it let's (laughs) sit down and talk to people and and get some of these stories out here and i'm blown away by the things i learn episode by episode but great as we think about that shift in that narrative is there anything in particular that you know you think about it that terrapin's doing to try to better tell that story, whether it's geothermal. I know you guys are heavily involved in geothermal and some other things. Is is there any particular message you guys are trying to communicate right now to kind of change some of that resistance?
5: To change the resistance, I think that's just happening naturally just because the industry has stepped up. So our goal at the end of the day is to celebrate those first movers. I think Yotam touched on that too, was you know, his first clients are those progressive clients, and we're seeing the same things playing out in our industries, whether it is somebody looking at geothermal or waste heat recovery. Our goal is to let the world know, the investment community, and just the community at large, that these companies are stepping up to the plate now. They're investing in this world and they should be celebrated for their efforts.
3: So, as we think about one of the things, and I hit on it earlier, you know, data brings change. It's it's a powerful tool. It certainly can be used by those progressive companies that are really trying to access data to bring about that change. Do you see a way that you guys can leverage into that data from, you know, just kind of trying to build this out and, and take what Yotam is doing and say, hey, you know, we can take this data and actually do, you know, we can tap into others that need to take the same journey as the progressives are doing?
5: Yeah, I mean... I noticed initially that he was talking about expanding into tracking more types of fugitive emissions. And, you know, that's where Terrapin goes and tracks right away. You know, we look at where's the wasted heat. Wasted heat usually is around chemical processes that have fugitive emissions. And, you know, if we can get on top of that data, you know, putting my developer hat on and saying okay, you know, this data is now available. How can we use that as a developer to go out and and, and access these clients to, you know, sell scrubbing services to them, you know? find out where those fugitive emissions are. And you, you don't know who the worst emitters are until, like you said, you can start measuring it. <laughs> and so once we can see that data, we know where to go put our sales force out into the, the real, or out, put our boots on the ground and go chase those clients. And because right now we just don't know where they are.
4: So to that, you know, it's one thing you know, from a practical standpoint, calling up and, and knowing somebody's hungry and wants to go to dinner. So you're providing that service and you're, you're, you're advertising that you have something to appeal to that need. Is there a resistance relative to kind of in the spirit, especially with the atmosphere now or even before, to kind of show up at a doorstep and say, "Hey, we know that you're this a huge emitter of, uh, <laughs> of of these fugitive gases and fugitive emissions we're here to help It seems to me like it would take a little bit of a politicking, a little bit of romance you know kind of like nurturing that relationship before you kind of point out hey you're you're kind of the highest emitter in that regard and relative to companies responding to that properly or in a, in a positive way, what's kind of maybe the the angle y'all take in order to have that conversation with a company?
5: Yeah. So it's understanding their motivations from the corporation level. So, you know, starting with, is there threats of facility closures? You know, some people are are surpassing their permitting allowances, rising costs, you know, there's cost of carbon, you know, there's jurisdiction. Canada has a carbon tax. The U S obviously doesn't, who knows where that'll go. Their social conscience of their corporate governance, Is society pushing them a little bit or, you know, are they losing investment because they're not acting in this world? And so, you know, like Yotam said, you don't want to hit them over the head and be aggressive and mean about it. You just want to present the facts as they are and just understand, do they have the motivation to do it? Because those first movers will absolutely want to do something with you. And then it might take a little bit of politicking and get to the facility level managers and then work your way up into the C-suite and get you, you might have to get the whole value chain bought in.
3: You know, it definitely sounds like it, it has to be a little bit of a sensitive cold call around some of that. But I think you hit on, I mean, there's permitting issues, there's social conscience, but I think there's also just flat out bottom line issues, you know, ways to tap into, you know, that waste heat and and turn it into value. I think that's kind of, you know, you guys, when you go look at the website, it's like, we turn heat, you know, that kind of heat into value, right? And, and, you know, there's a good story to tell there with what you guys are doing and trying to, to capture that and improve it from an environmental standpoint.
4: And maybe expand upon that a little bit, Gray, as far as so in regards to the business opportunity, kind of help us understand we have this typical model or this typical engine or something that happens relative to you know, combustion or something like that, or just refineries or just these other you know, customers that you guys have. Well, the natural, there's like a vent and it just kind of goes out, right? But you're, and what even Tom's talk, talking about is identifying that and repurposing it to some extent. Can you give us kind of an idea of that market and where, where the opportunities are relative to that. I mean, is it, is it a small thing or is it a huge opportunity relative to the industry?
5: Yeah, I mean, it, waste heat is a large, large market. So almost 60% of the energy that we create as a global society is lost as waste heat. And obviously that is through the tailpipe of a car. And so like not all 60% of that is able to be captured. It's just not possible. But, you know, oil and gas, pulp and paper, or agriculture, the list is endless. You know, there's a lot of industries, manufacturing, steel, cement, glass, you know, it's a large, large opportunity and problem, you know, pro- with every problem there's opportunity. And yeah, it is quite vast.
3: To be honest, I just, I got blown away a little bit by that percentage and I want to make sure I heard it again but 60% of the energy we create is just wasted.
5: Yep. So about 290,000 petajoules and so a single petajoule can heat and power about 25,000 American homes for a year on average. So it's so really it's just a, a
3: question of finding us. Obviously we can't build a, some kind of power plant off the back of my F-250 and, and <laughs> tap it into the, to the exhaust. But it's a question of just finding those emission points and saying, hey, no, you know, we can actually capture all of this lost power. And think about massive efficiency gains. You want to talk about cutting down on emissions and cutting down on kind of the generation, you know, that initial generation and making it more efficient. That's, I mean, that's a little bit mind-blowing to me.
5: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And there's a level, you know, you can't generate power with all of that waste either. You know, there's that low grade waste heat that doesn't create the metrics to generate power. But that's still very important heat because that's where you go and you attack that natural gas infrastructure and try to start offsetting firing gas for like boiler heating. Or here in Canada, you know, 60% of the natural gas usage is for space heating because we have such cold winters. We were talking about it before we came on how cold it was up here the last couple of weeks and we burn a lot of gas to heat and so that low-grade waste heat and then geothermal heat is very very important to support the energy transition
4: so relative to from a renewable standpoint geothermal is kind of in that area of an alternative to the typical in terms of emissions and stuff like that not and this isn't to pick on this is just to define a perspective but what kind of emissions issues or or waste or something like that is geothermal up against and how does it compare relative to typical oil and gas, if you will.
5: So the drilling is the exact same between oil and gas and geothermal. The difference is that the hole's a bit bigger. So you're still poking holes in the earth. You're still, you know, most oil and gas rigs are powered by a diesel fire generator. So while you're drilling, you know, you are emitting. But there are options out there to look at that you can potentially repurpose some low grade waste heat and generate own power to offset that. Those are some things that we're exploring. But, you know, a lot of the the pushback comes around actually going and developing and, and building these projects. Once they're generating, you know, they're completely carbon negative. And so that's where you realize the gains back. And then obviously you have a 25, 30, 40 year carbon offsetting producing asset. But that's usually the knock on it is focused around the initial drilling because, you know, so our project in Northern Alberta, we're drilling four and a half kilometers to get to our resource, which is pretty deep. And, you know, we got to drill seven wells at the end of the day for one single project. And so that is a long drilling program, but the project will offset its own carbon footprint by the end as well and even exceed it.
3: You said 30 to 40 year life kind of cycle for that. Help me understand that. I mean, I guess I would have thought As long as the hole's in the ground and we can cycle through it, you know, we can capture that heat and put it to work. We're just talking about The facilities on the top that's pumping and moving stuff around. Is that what we're talking about?
5: Yeah. So, I mean, there's geothermal resources that, you know, they're 100 year resources that are still going strong. It's all about well management at the end of the day, you know, making sure you're not injecting your cold brine too close to where you're producing it back to surface and that it has time to regenerate back down in the geothermal formation. But yeah, that 25, 30, 40 year life cycle is talking about that power facility up top and the district heat network that would follow on as well.
4: Well, great. We definitely appreciate the insight just to kind of front load a little bit. We are going to have Terrapin on as one of our case studies here in the future. So we're looking forward to that. I know we've been talking about that. And so we're just, we're grateful for you to come out here and comment on the inside segment around Tom's episode and yeah, great little segment.
3: Yeah. Looking forward to the case study as well. And thanks for coming to visit with us and enjoyed it.
4: Is there anything as we as we kind of wrap up when it comes to like emissions and it just comes in that general facility, is there anything that stands out that you know from a terrapin standpoint, or even from a personal standpoint, that you've kind of seen like when we talk about these kinds of detection, what is there anything that resonates with you personally that kind of goes, man, that's such a good idea because of this reason back to the case study a little bit.
5: Good question. You know, I think like you said, you can't measure what you don't know is there. And that's kind of our philosophy with waste heat too is you know, we go into a facility and we heat map their facility and tell them what they don't know. And so it, it is, it's, it's an education piece at the end of the day. It's teaching your clients about what they don't know and why they should know about it and I think he's on top of that, and they're doing a fantastic job with it. And you know, they have Commander Hadfield, who commanded the International Space Station, as one of their advisors. He's about as famous as the Prime Minister here in Canada, actually. <laughs> so it's also really cool to be on a podcast with the Bluefield Group. Yeah,
4: I love that as a stopping point, though. That's so true. Yeah, no, it's great. Excellent, excellent. All right, buddy.
5: Thanks for the time, Gray. We we'll look forward to talking
4: in the future. And with that, Eric, wrap another inside segment. Awesome. All right, thanks, thanks. Gray. You're welcome.
0: Hey everybody it's savannah from oggn and here are the events on deck for february 2021 this month we only have three events but if you'd like the full list you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter we send it out every month and it includes more info about the events i talk about here we even include events that occur two months ahead of time so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events make sure to check that out First up, we have our two in-person events: the TAMU SPE Sporting Clays Tournament at Tonkaway Ranch in College Station on the 19th, and the Thrive Energy Conference at Minute Maid Park from the 24th to the 26th. The only online event we have this month is the TAMU SPE Executive Series with our very own Mark Lacour of Oil and Gas This Week on the 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook. LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for February. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in.
4: On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week.
2: Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We, a nation, making change. Let me frame the
3: illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG, in the power here to innovate. In the vein, elevate your mind to a higher
1: place. OGG, in the power here to innovate. Ha!